Welcome to Season 7, Episode 7 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. I mentioned a few episodes ago that this will be my last season on the Roundtable podcast, but if you're interested in interacting with me in a mastermind-like atmosphere, join me for a live editing workshop each month absolutely free. Come with your latest writing pain point, and together we'll workshop you to your next right step. Just go to KimberKessler.com and sign up for my list. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-K-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. You'll receive a link to the next call session, and I hope to see you there. This week, I'm looking at fried green tomatoes in order to study core events. This 1991 film was directed by John Avnet from a screenplay by Fanny Flagg and Carol Sobieski. It was based on the 1987 novel Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. As always, this is an adult conversation. You may hear some adult words. And a content warning, just so you're aware, our discussion will not include ethnic epithets, but they do appear in both the film and the novel. Okay, so let's talk about the story. This story is what I like to call a pillar of my youth. My grandma owned the VHS tape, so growing up, I've watched it a lot of times. But I'd never read the novel until just this week, and I have to say, it was an absolute delight. The novel is very much a mini plot and uses several different points of view and narrative devices to tell various threads, which is a lot of fun. It's no surprise that the structure of the film is much tidier, and while it's still lovely, it doesn't have that same richness that I found in the novel. And this is a recurring observation about the differences between novels and their adaptations. But what I love is that the author of the novel was one of the screenwriters for the film. And I'm fascinated by that interpretation of the same story into different mediums, what things are changed, what is kept. And to me, it's just a case study in intention. Okay, so enough preamble. This story jumps between two different time periods, both set near Birmingham, Alabama. The present, which is actually the mid-1980s, with the growing friendship between middle-aged Evelyn Couch and the elderly Ninny Threadgood. And in the past, which is starts in the Depression era and forward, with the relationship between Iggy Threadgood and Ruth Jameson. Now, the film presents Iggy and Ruth as best friends, um, whereas the novel, it's much clearer that they are lovers. In both versions, their lifelong commitment to each other is unmistakable. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to outline the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff according to the film version, um, but I'll be referring to the novel in my analysis of core events. Okay, here's the beginning hook. In the past, 16-year-old Iggy Threadgood is the youngest of nine children and a tomboy who runs wild. But when Iggy's mother asks Ruth Jameson, a young friend from church, to befriend Iggy, Ruth must decide if she will persist despite Iggy's refusals. Ruth joins Iggy in her adventures and wins her trust and her love. But when Ruth tells Iggy she has to leave at the end of the summer to get married, Iggy rejects her and returns to her previous wild lifestyle. In the present, while visiting a family member at a nursing home, an unassertive Evelyn Couch meets Mrs. Threadgood, a chatty elderly woman. At first, Evelyn merely humors Mrs. Threadgood's stories from her youth, but when Mrs. Threadgood mentions her sister-in-law, Iggy Threadgood, was accused of murder, Evelyn is drawn in and begins visiting Mrs. Threadgood regularly. In the middle build, 
In the past, Iggy helps a pregnant Ruth get away from her abusive husband, Frank Bennett. Later, he comes to Whistle Stop and tries to steal the baby and is killed. His body and vehicle go missing. But when the vehicle is found in the river, Iggy and Big George are arrested for the murder and stand trial. Things look hopeless until Reverend Scroggins lies on the stand as their alibi. The death is declared accidental and the case is thrown out. In the present, Evelyn's attempts to assert herself in the world fail, and her self-esteem is at an all-time low. She visits Mrs. Threadgood alone this time, who encourages her with good advice and stories of Iggy and Ruth's strength. The next time Evelyn is blatantly dismissed and disrespected, she asserts herself successfully, six times with her truck into the VW bug that stole her parking spot that she was waiting for. In the ending payoff, in the past, Ruth falls ill and dies of cancer, and her loss is mourned by all. This time, rather than running from her grief, Iggy stays in the community and continues to raise their son. In the present, Evelyn uses her newfound confidence to make bold changes in her life, but when she learns that Mrs. Threadgood's house has been demolished and she won't be able to leave the nursing home as planned, Evelyn invites her to come and live with her and her husband instead. While in Whistle Stop, they see Ruth's grave along with a fresh jar of honey and a note from the bee charmer. Iggy is alive and still devoted to Ruth. Okay, so what is the genre? Is it society? Is it crime? I honestly, I'm I'm really open to interpretation on this one. I really had trouble nailing this down, but it's not because the story didn't work. At least it worked for me. It's that there's these multiple layers. They, we've got past, present, multiple characters, external and internal arcs. We have aspects of love, society, and crime. It's just really tricky to point and say this is the global genre. In the film, they use the introduction of the crime story to create narrative drive. They raise the question with intrigue of Mrs. Threadgood's line, how anyone could have thought she killed that man is beyond me. So maybe it's a crime story? I picked Fried Green Tomatoes because when I revisited the story in my mind, it felt like status in society, either women's or historical. And I wanted the stories I chose this season to come from the esteem tank so I could look at the differences in how the core events played out. These two genres are definitely in play, even more so in the novel, but I don't know that the core events I found align with those genres specifically. Okay, so let's jump into our discussion about core events. I'm examining core events this season, which are one of the four elements in the four core framework that make a genre what it is. We have the core need, which is represented by the core value, and as the protagonist pursues their need and the values shift, we evoke the core emotion in the reader. And the core event, then, is the peak moment of change and the height of that core emotion. If you're interested in learning more about core events, I encourage you to check out two new titles available from StoryGrid Publishing, The Four Core Framework by Sean Coyne that explains the fundamental elements for each of the 12 content genres, and Four Core Fiction, an anthology of 12 original short stories written by StoryGrid certified editors, one for each of the 12 content genres, and globally edited by myself and Rebecca Monteruso. Okay, so about today's story. So I'm going to talk about this a little differently than I have previously this season. Normally, I'd identify the genre up front, and then I'd describe the core event in the story that exemplifies it. But today, since I'm struggling to land on the genre, I'm going to explore my peak moments of catharsis first and try to noodle closer to an answer on genre. In the film, there are three moments that stood out to me as significant payoffs. 
In the past, there is a moment when Iggy and Big George are on trial for Frank Bennett's murder, and the Reverend Scroggins, whom Iggy loathes and harasses regularly, takes the stand on their behalf and testifies that both Iggy and George were assisting at the three-day church revival meeting at the time Frank Bennett was murdered. His alibi is irrefutable, and the judge calls the prosecutor to the stand and tells him he doesn't have a case anymore, since they don't even have a body. The judge declares Frank Bennett's death accidental and throws out the case. Iggy and George are free. Iggy is amazed that the Reverend lied at all, but for her especially, he actually swore on a copy of Moby Dick, but nonetheless expects to see Sister Edgy at church on Sunday. Now, this scene is a huge answer to the opening question. We know that Iggy was arrested for the murder of Frank Bennett, but we don't know whether or not she was convicted or how she gets out of it. And the fact that the Reverend testified on her behalf is surprising, and it's a fun moment of poetic justice for all parties. Now, in the novel, the judge knows the Reverend is lying, but his own daughter had been a victim of Frank Bennett's bearing a child by him and being left neglected and ruined woman who died before her time. So he doesn't much care who killed him or why. In a way, this scene feels like a society core event a revolution scene where members of the ruling class are co-opted for the cause of the underclass. This is a big moment in the story and we feel relief and joy that Iggy and George are safe, but we still don't know the truth about what's hap- what actually happened to Frank Bennett. Did they just get away with murder or is it something else? But then there is a moment when in the in the film when Mrs. Threadgood tells Evelyn the truth about who killed Frank Bennett and what happened to the body. This is the final answer to the opening image and the question raised about Iggy being arrested for Frank's murder. It was Sipsy in self-defense, witnessed by Smokey Lonesome. But Big George and Iggy knew that no one would believe them, and so they figured how to get rid of the body and the car, and which their answer, hog boiling time. They barbecued Frank Bennett and served him to the investigator who was poking around. So that's why Iggy had to stand trial for Frank's murder in order to keep Sipsy safe. Now, in the novel, Evelyn never learns who really killed Frank Bennett, and even Mrs. Threadgood doesn't know. The reader finds out from the omniscient narrator in the past, and specifically by following George's son, Artis, who unfortunately isn't in the film at all. Still, the main events are the same. Sipsy killed Frank Bennett to save Ruth's baby. They ditched the car in the river and they boiled his body like a hog. This is the final answer to the question of who really killed Frank Bennett, and it feels like a crime corvent of unmasking the criminal. Okay, so while that's most likely the core event of the global genre, it just doesn't feel like what the story is really about. Fried green tomatoes? A crime story? But then when we look a little closer at the four core framework of crime, we see some interesting things. So the core need is safety in a crime story, and the core value is justice and injustice. The core emotion of crime is intrigue, which I personally like to refer to as fascination, and the core event is exposure of the criminal. Now, when I look at the various threads of this story, especially in the novel, I am struck by how many involve being arrested, going to jail, going to prison, or even being executed, and not to mention Ruth's own safety and abuse by her husband, Frank. The themes of injustice are everywhere, but it just doesn't feel like a crime story. It feels like it's about love and family and friendship. 
And it's as though the author used the external aspects of crime as an armature to weave her cast of characters around, highlighting the various levels of society and the injustice that they face and how love and friendship can help us overcome them. Now, Evelyn's arc in the story goes much deeper in the novel, and there's a significant core event moment when she attends a black church service by herself and experiences a profound moment of emotional healing. Her worldview about herself, her city, and the black community changes. And as someone who belongs to a rowdy multiracial church, I found it especially enjoyable. In Virgin's promised terms, she is able to give up what kept her stuck and reorder her kingdom for the better. And this looks, I'm having a hard time telling, is the status uh, sentimental? Is it worldview education? She has a lot of that going on, um, but it is it is very rewarding ending for Evelyn in the novel. Fried Green Tomatoes is another story that was chosen before the season began, but in light of recent events, reading, watching, and studying it has shown me so many relevant lessons about standing up for others who the system doesn't protect. Okay, so that may not have been uh, as clear as I'd hoped, but hopefully you got something out of it. And again, I encourage you to watch the film and read the novel. So Valerie, will you please tell me what you learned um, about the story structure from Fried Green Tomatoes? Yeah, I'm going to take a little break this week from my uh, look at the, the act structure that I've been doing so far this season, because Fried Green Tomatoes is the kind is a it's a kind of story within a story, right? So it gives me an opportunity to look at the structure of a framing story and a nested story. Now, we've seen this set up lots of times, you know, for example, the Bridges of Madison County, the Princess Bride, and there's just a whole bunch of others. In what I've studied so far, this approach either really works or it really doesn't work. <laughs> Writing a story with multiple storylines is tricky business because the writer has got to maintain the reader's or the viewer's interest in each story. She's got to develop empathy for multiple protagonists and create narrative drive that is so strong Readers won't mind leaving one story to pick up another. And it's not an easy thing to do. So what usually happens then is that readers get irritated, right? Just as they're getting into one story, the narrative switches to something else. And then just as they're getting used to the new narrative, everything flips back to the first story. Now, by the way, the same issue can come into play when a writer chooses extensive flashbacks, especially if the flashbacks are used primarily as exposition. So what's the solution here? I've been studying this a lot lately and thinking about it and talking to Leslie about it because she's my editor for my current work in progress, which has multiple storylines as well as a nested story. And to be honest, as I sit here today, I don't have the definitive answer, but I do have a strategy for handling this type of story, and it's this. There needs to be a tight connection between the nested story and the framing story, and a tight connection between the storylines. One storyline needs to inform the other. There could be a literal connection. For example, a character from the past reappears in the present, or a thematic connection. You know, For example, multiple protagonists dealing with the same issue in different ways. Otherwise, the framing story becomes expendable. If we think about the bridges of Madison County, all the present day bits with Francesca's adult children can be removed and it doesn't negatively impact the love story at all. In fact, it might even enhance the story, <laughs> might make the movie better. I've been asking myself, what is the connection between Evelyn's story and Iggy's story? 
Yes, obviously, Evelyn is listening as Nini recounts Iggy's story. And Evelyn does take on the Tawanda call when she beats down the wall in her house. But Iggy isn't a mentor to Evelyn. Nini is the mentor. Iggy and Evelyn are dealing with completely different issues. Iggy's dealing with societal issues. Evelyn is in a marriage love story or maturation story, as uh, Kim mentioned. If anything, Evelyn's story is more like Ruth's. They're both in marriage love stories, but Ed isn't anything like Frank. Ed might be blind to Evelyn's needs and the state of their marriage, um, and he's definitely stuck in his ways, but he's not abusive. Frank, on the other hand, is a total monster. Ruth never really becomes independent. She's always frail, and she's always relying on others to help her. Evelyn does eventually step out on her own. Now, as I was listening to Kim do her bit a, a minute ago, a lot of the questions that I had were answered by uh, what Kim said, and basically it was better in the book. <laughs> and, you know, what can I say? I'm a novelist, so I kind of lean toward that way anyway. But I think it's really an issue of novel form versus film form. I think that's sort of the root problem and the thing that I was latching onto as I did my bit here. Okay, so looking at the movie alone, we could break the two storylines apart and create separate films from them, and neither would suffer. Iggy and Ruth's story is complete. Ninny isn't even really in that story, so removing her from it doesn't change things at all. And I did ask him about this, and she is uh, Ninny is far more present in the novel than she is in the film. In the movie, Evelyn's story is thin, but it's there. It's meeting Ninny that helps her come into her own. It's not really Iggy's story. It would make more sense if Jessica Tandy's character introduced herself as Ms. Threadgood, and then in the end we discovered that she actually is Iggy. And that's kind of, it's weird in the movie because she introduces herself as Mrs. Cleo Threadgood and said she married Iggy's brother. But in the end, when we're dealing with that honey jar at Ruth's grave, almost implies that she's Iggy. So it's kind of weird. But if she were Iggy, then she's the thread between the two stories and she's helping two women find their own voices. I mean, that would be a great linking element between both storylines. Yes, we've got a relationship between two sets of women, but they're very different types of relationships. While there could be a clear link between the storylines of the novel, you know, it's lost here in the film. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for this. No, I'm just guessing, of course, because I, I haven't spoken with the filmmakers. But based on all the stories we've studied so far here on the show, my guess is that the book has more story in it than the filmmakers could fit into a two-hour movie. Now, the four lead actors are truly fabulous, and I was perfectly happy to watch their performance. I don't have any arguments or complaint about that at all. But as novelists, all we've got to work with is words on a page and our readers' imaginations. Like, that's it. So for the purposes of the show here today, I've got to set the actors aside. So if there isn't anything literally or thematically linking the two stories, then each story has to be so compelling that we as the reader or viewer cannot wait to find out what happens next. As Kim said earlier, we're definitely asking ourselves what happened to Frank. We want to know if he's dead or alive. If he's dead, who killed him? Was it Iggy or not? And why haven't they found a body? 
if he's alive, what happened to make him go away and stay away? These are certainly compelling questions, but they don't kick in until the midpoint and they're answered by the end of the middle bill. So really they only carry about 25% of the story. We do wonder if Evelyn will step into her power and if so, how Ed will react to it. But because there isn't time to fully explore her story, when she does step out, it happens in a series of quick scenes. Nini tells her to get hormone replacement therapy and get a job and she does and that's kind of it. It's, it's a shame, actually, because there's a whole rich story to be told there. And at, off the top, Kim referenced the richness of the novel. And I think that's what I'm missing there. It's like the film has the potential for it, but it stops short of it. When we studied Center Stage, I noticed the same thing. Maureen's story was, was good. It was very good but it could have been an entire movie, right? In fact, that's what Black Swan was about. Now, I don't mean here to be harshly criticizing fried green tomatoes. That's not what I'm doing. What I am trying to do when I'm studying today's story or any of the stories on any of the episodes, regardless of which principle I'm looking at, what I'm trying to do is see if there's a common thread across these stories. I'm looking for trends. I'm trying to see what happens when stories are constructed a certain way or when a principle is used in a particular way. When does a technique really work and when doesn't it work? And when it comes to stories with these types of framing devices, I am starting to see a trend. If we're going to make them work, then the framing story and the global story have got to be connected somehow. And that connection has got to be integral to the whole story. So they're better together than they are apart. That's great, Valerie. I love that insight. Thank you. Okay, Leslie, give us your thoughts about point of view and narrative device for fried green tomatoes. Okay, so obviously I'm continuing my study of point of view and narrative device this season. My stock phrase is that if genre is what your story is about, then point of view and narrative device are how you deliver it to your reader or viewer. That's why I firmly believe that your point of view and narrative device choice is the most important decision you make after the global genre. So the narrative device or situation answers these questions. Who or what is telling the story and to whom? When and where are they telling the story? And why are they telling the story? Point of view is the technical element, which tells us whether it's first person or third person, for example. It answers the question, how do we create the effect of the narrative device for the reader? These two elements of story perspective must be in sync, or your story can be undermined. So what's more the point of view and narrative device give you valuable constraints to make decisions about what to include in your scenes and how, not at random or based on a whim, but to support and enhance your story. So I explore this in my upcoming story grid beat on point of view, as well as my bite-sized episode on choosing your point of view. And I'll include links to that episode and my point of view articles in the show notes. I start my analysis by asking, what 
is the opportunity presented by the premise. And a story's premise describes a specific character or characters in a setting with a problem. And this creates an interesting situation for Fried Green Tomatoes because we have two primary stories in both the novel and the film with several smaller subplots. So Evelyn Couch is a middle-class, middle-aged homemaker living in Alabama in the 1980s who's trying to save her unsatisfying marriage. Her real challenge is that she's trying to derive all her meaning from that marriage. Iggy Threadgood is a young woman living in a small town in Alabama who lost her beloved brother when she was young and struggles in an environment of poverty and violence where she doesn't fit the mold of a typical Southern woman. She finds meaning in playing the role of trickster in her relationships with the people in her community. Now, what these two characters have in common is that they are women living in the same part of the world and struggling with meaning. Evelyn is sheltered in a way and lacks experience. Iggy endures several traumatic experiences. Two primary differences between them are their circumstances. Evelyn leads a safe and comfortable but unsatisfying life in the late 20th century, while Iggy lives a life of hardship in the time between the world wars. Now, how they seek and find meaning in an environment where they are treated as if they don't matter is different as well. So we have what I would characterize as a milieu mini plot story designed to show how a wide range of character types find meaning in the South across time. There's an opportunity to find an innovative way to connect these two women and let the life of one inspire the life of the other. So that's the opportunity. What's the point of view? Well, the book includes four distinct narratives that which must have been a real headache to try to pull together. We have first person written articles from the Weems Weekly by Dot Weems covering events in Whistlestop, Alabama, beginning in 1929. We have an omniscient narration revealing Evelyn's story. We have Ninny telling Iggy's story to Evelyn in the first person, I as witness perspective. And this takes the form of spoken delivery. And then we have omniscient narration of other events from Whistle Stop. So those are in the novel. The film includes just two narrative lines, Ninny telling Iggy's story that is nested within Evelyn's story. So that's the point of view. What's the narrative device? Well, the question for me becomes who is telling Evelyn's story? Because it's clear and overt that Ninny is telling Iggy's story. But who is pulling all the stories together in the novel? 
My hunch is that it's meant to be someone like Fanny Flagg, who received a box of pictures and clippings from a female relative that provide the details for a wide variety of experiences within a specific place. So are there clues for us in how the story is structured? In the film, we have episodes from Iggy's life, as told by Ninny, to Evelyn, and I would say ostensibly because Ninny is bored and lonely. Now, it makes sense that Ninny entices Evelyn with a hint about murder. You might think of this as the serial podcast before podcasts were invented. And of course, this is a device that pulls the reader in too. We wonder what is that reference to murder? So again, the idea seems to be to entice readers or viewers with what they want and then give them what they need. So if the reader wants a cozy murder mystery set in the South, like we have here, or they want an exciting science fiction action story that as the one we have in Passengers, or they want a science fiction crime noir story as in Blade Runner, we want to entice them with what they want. Readers want to escape their current reality often, but perhaps what they need which we can uncover from the analysis, is a story to help them find meaning in their own lives and their current situation, just like the characters in these stories who face crises of meaning that rises to the level of life and death. So why do we need the extra layer of artifice in fried green tomatoes? I think Evelyn's story is designed to help late 20th century women relate to Iggy more easily. When a character's experience is so different from your own, the experience can feel inaccessible. Iggy is a very rebellious character who refuses to conform to anyone's expectations. So I think Evelyn helps the reader see what they actually have in common with Iggy so that they can learn to rebel in a way that feels authentic to them. How well does the story work? Well, the narrative device and point of view seem to work pretty well in the film and the novel. The film has issues with the potential bait and switch with Nini's identity, but it's not a big problem and it comes at the very end. The narrative device to me, though, feels a bit affected, a bit too clever, but that might be the result of viewing it outside what I view as its time, but also because the event that's meant to pull us in, the discovery of Frank Bennett's truck, is an important external event in the story, but it's not what the story is about. So the primary element of narrative drive isn't as vital to the story as it might seem. Now, along those lines, in 2020, this story feels a little condescending. The idea that women can find meaning outside of roles and relationships that were conventional in the 1980s and earlier is not as revelatory as it now as it would have been then. 
And maybe, just maybe, it's because the middle-aged women of the 80s had Tawanda. I don't want to be overly critical of a story outside its time, but I pick up on this slight disconnect. And I think that the story doesn't mean the same to me as it would to my mother, who still loves and enjoys this film and cries to Wanda every time she sees it. But I see this with worldview education stories of a certain type. So it seems to be what Passengers and Blade Runner have in common with fried green tomatoes, if you can believe it. These stories speak to a very specific audience in subtext so well that the readers or viewers become enthusiastic fans. They really get it. But if you're not in that specific group, you don't pick up on the subtext in the same way. And then the story isn't quite as satisfying. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, but it's different from writing a story that endures and appeals to a wider range of readers and viewers. So Sean talked about this recently in a StoryGrid Guild Q&A when he referred to personal masterworks. These are stories that work for us personally, but don't necessarily work universally across time and culture. These stories help us figure out where we've been stuck and how to move on. And he said we have a duty to analyze these stories for ourselves because the process of writing requires a high level of self-awareness. But if your goal is to write a story that endures and works beyond a specific audience, you'll want to find a masterwork that does both. I actually have a couple of recommendations especially if you're interested in milieu stories that are set in the American South. I recommend Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers, Joe by Larry Brown, and As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. I'll include a link in the show notes to a list of other great Southern stories. Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. That was enriching as usual. I loved it. So we like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. What have we learned this week? Valerie? The key takeaway for me is really to think about what story we want to tell. We all have a tendency to want to cram too much into our stories. I am really guilty of that, aren't I, Leslie? (laughs) And often when that happens, we don't do any of the storylines justice. So if we want to use a framing story in the telling of our narrative, I think what we've got to do is make sure that the framing story is part of the overall story. We've got to make sure that the reader would miss it if it were gone. So my key takeaway is that we want to innovate narrative device and point of view choices, but we want to avoid being what I would call too clever. So in the same way that purple prose draws too much attention to itself, a narrative device can do the same. Now, I don't want to be too hard on fried green tomatoes. It's a really entertaining story, but it comes close to crossing the line because it relies on who killed Frank Bennett to provide a lot of narrative drive. 
So my takeaway today is, I'm not sure how universal this will be, but it's really a fascination with mini plot stories and stories that are told through multiple narrative devices to create a uniquely rich reading experience. Now, the global genre and the core event are less overt than I expected, but the controlling idea and theme seems to resonate even more deeply. How is that possible? So this is definitely something that I enjoy and I intend to keep studying. Okay, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Krista Adams on the StoryGrid Guild. Krista writes, In my self-directed meandering way of trying to absorb and assimilate as much StoryGrid content as possible on my way to the dream job of being a StoryGrid certified editor, I actually landed at Stephen Pressfield's site where he has two short companion pieces called Make Your Heroes Suffer. He says that your protagonist should embody the theme, and he uses Gatsby as an example. But maybe the roundtable could look more deeply at how theme and the protagonist are intertwined and offer some examples from your studies. For extra credit, I'd also love to hear more about how you all see the villain's role in determining theme. Hmm, this might fall under the rubric of forces of antagonism, which means I should go back and re-listen to the podcasts with pleasure. Thanks for the great question, Krista. Yes, Stephen Pressfield says that the protagonist should embody the theme, which we also call the controlling idea. And you ask a great question in, why is that? How does that work? And where does the antagonist come in? Well, the controlling idea is a concise expression of the protagonist's journey in a cause and effect statement. And the theme is really what the story is about. So if the protagonist doesn't embody the theme, then you want to consider whether the protagonist is the right character for the story, or if the theme identified is not an accurate summing up of the story. So those things aside, life is random and chaotic. And if stories are too, they aren't going to be that useful to us. The controlling idea or theme is the primary lesson or kernel of knowledge that the writer offers the reader. Now, if the suffering inflicted on the protagonist is random and isn't on theme, there's no real lesson. A possible theme of life is random and it sucks until you die isn't much of a theme. And there aren't very many people who are going to read a book like that or recommend it to their friends because it doesn't offer any real nourishment. So at a basic level, great stories pit two forces against each other, those of the protagonist and the antagonist, and each represents the theme and its opposite. So if the protagonist prevails, that is, they get what they need, we want to understand why and how so we can do that when we face similar problems. Now, if the antagonist prevails, we want to understand why and how so we can avoid the actions that led to failure. So those make up prescriptive and cautionary tales. But again, we don't want this to be on the nose. We want to absorb the lesson through the experience, through the subtext of the story. So when the protagonist embodies the theme and the antagonist embodies the anti-theme, we can absorb the prescriptive or cautionary lesson more easily. 
Here are a few examples. And since you mentioned The Great Gatsby, I'll use that as one of them. I say the controlling idea is we succumb to disillusionment when we learn a shocking dark truth that we cannot yet metabolize. So both Nick Carraway and Jay Gatsby believe the best about certain people. So the suffering inflicted upon them comes in the form of external antagonists, including Daisy, who already know the dark truth and are looking out for number one. Nick and Gatsby are unable to see that truth until it's too late, so their story serves as a cautionary tale. In It's a Wonderful Life, I call the controlling idea, no person is a failure who has friends. George Bailey believes he's a failure because he never left Bedford Falls and never did anything that he would consider great. He learns that it is a great thing to be a friend to others in the community and to have friends. The type of suffering inflicted on George by the writer is that he has a wealth of everything except the things he associates with success. Now, the external antagonist, Mr. Potter, stands for the proposition that friends don't really matter, only wealth and property. Of course, we know he's wrong. Okay, then in The Bear Came Over the Mountain, the controlling idea is love survives when life partners are willing to sacrifice what they want for a little grace. In that story, Grant believes that love means he has to make up for his infidelity by being present with Fiona. The type of suffering he experiences then is that he's thwarted from spending time with her because of her dementia. He learns that he must be willing to make the sacrifice that she needs, not the one he's most comfortable with. So I hope those examples will help. Thanks again for your question, Krista. Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. So if you have a question about controlling idea, theme, core events, or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leave us a voice message. Okay, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you so much, Leslie and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into Fried Green Tomatoes. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about and execute your core event in your story. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes as well. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And join us next time when Valerie will look at the three-act structure in the 2014 film, The Imitation Game. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.